pretty early on, I remember I was on a mission trip and we knocked on a door and these guys opened the door and they were in the middle of a session like they, they literally I think he was blowing smoke out, out as he opened the door and well, I'm like said oh yeah I'm Shane and this is Cameron we're from we're from Wollongong and we're here and I was in Newcastle from such and such church and the guy's like oh yeah we're good mate thanks for dropping by I'm like oh yeah yeah it smells like you're smoking some head there, and the guys like looked at me like, "What do you mean?" I said, "Oh yeah, before I was a Christian, um, yeah, I used to smoke, I used to smoke heaps of bombs, man." He's like, "He's oh yeah, well, how come you stopped?" And I'm like, "Well, I stopped because yeah, I, I found Jesus." Shane, welcome, welcome to the little picture. It's great to have you along. Uh, looking forward to getting to know you more. What are you, what are you doing now at the moment that there's no football on? I know you're a massive Dragons fan. And it's interesting that we might be talking about suffering tonight. I've probably been saved a bit of suffering the way they were going. It was going to be a very, very long 2020 for the Dragons. Shane, I want to take you back to 1990. You were having troubles at the time in your life. You were kicked out of home. Can you tell us what brought about you being kicked out of home? Uh, I've been blessed by having loving parents who have always stood by me. So yeah. it, it certainly got to a place where I didn't want to be there and particularly with my younger brother and sister being there, I couldn't be there. So it was rather than a, you've got to get out on your own, it was rather... For everybody's best interest, so I had to get out and I started started living with my grandmother. But yeah, I'd been uh, yeah running amok for a few years. I would uh, was one of the first generation of kids that was diagnosed with ADHD. Uh, back then, it was only just starting to be be recognised as a condition. And yeah, I'd done the tests, and uh, yeah, I was hitting all the parameters. Um, I'd been uh, uh, prescribed medication, which back then was uh, pretty much just uh, pharmaceutical methamphetamine, um, which when you took it was effective. But if you uh, didn't take it, uh, yeah, your behaviour was pretty wayward as mine was, and you didn't sleep. Like oh, I remember taking it, and like yeah, I'd be I'd be up till two, three o'clock in the morning, and obviously the rest of the family would want to sleep, and that was unsettling. So there was there was probably a whole series of things that led up to that, but just pretty much I didn't want to be at home. I, I wanted to be my own boss, so to speak, and want my yeah. parents telling me what to do or how to live my life. And like every teenager, I thought I knew better, and yeah, I literally got to the place where my parents couldn't couldn't keep me at home. They said, "Yeah, you need to go and live with your grandmother. We, we can't keep you here." You're also suspended from school at different times. What were you getting in trouble for? I uh, yeah, had decided that uh, yeah, school wasn't for me. I really didn't like getting told what to do and, and felt that yeah, teachers were, uh, were being pretty authoritarian and, and, and the more the teachers tried to say, if you do this, I'll put you on attention or I'll only give me two detentions. Yeah, it literally got to the place where I, uh, I'd been involved in a, in, in a couple of fights. Uh, was yeah, was being very disrespectful for teachers. Just literally got to the point where I don't want to be here and if you're going to 
force me to stay, I'm going to make your life a misery. And yeah, I certainly wasn't focused on future opportunities or anything like that. All I knew was I hated school. I didn't particularly feel like I had a lot of friends there. I certainly didn't feel like any of the teachers had were on my side, even though I can look back now and just think, well, actually, that was probably. Well, not probably it was my perception at the time, but I don't know it was necessarily an accurate one. But yeah, it literally got to the point where there'd been an incident off school grounds, and yeah, I'd been in a I'd been in a fight with a couple of other boys, and then that got brought to school, and a, a guy came to school with nunchuckers, and another guy who wasn't even a student came with another weapon, and yeah, the school said right, that's enough. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, you're suspended now, and after a couple of times, it's time to go. Yeah. You're you're a big unit. Were they bringing nunchucks just because they couldn't beat you? Or like I, I think of my fighting, my own fighting history. My last fight I won by a hundred meters. Were you a good fighter as a as a kid? Is that why you were getting in trouble? You were just better at fighting than the others and more aggressive. And as you said, I even back then, by the time I was in year eight, I was about a hundred kilos and was pretty pretty active in sports. So yeah, fighting's a whole lot easier when. Every punch you lands worth two or three of what the other the other person lands. But I don't yeah. know if I say I was necessarily a good fighter, but I was a willing fighter. And Where was God in the picture for you as a kid and as a teenager? There was Christian morality, so to speak. That, that yeah, that the the expectation was you wouldn't lie, you wouldn't steal, you'd lead lead an honest life. Um, but my parents were always happy for me to go to scripture, so I remember. Uh, early primary school, uh, uh, the scripture teacher, Mrs. Vidler, she was actually like a casual school teacher at the school, but she used to teach scripture. And, and I remember her teaching scripture, and I can't say I clearly remember any particular lessons, but I just know that there's never really been a time in my life where I've had to wrestle with the whole idea is God there or God real. I've just always just known that God's there, um, that God had sent Jesus. My understanding of how God and Jesus and forgiveness and all that was very distorted, uh, certainly up until I, I was saved. But yeah, I'd always believed in God. Coming into my teenage years, as I was, yeah, as I said, was was running a market at school, getting into lots of fire. It started getting involved in like shoplifting and drug use and things like that. Um, I didn't really think too much about God, to be honest, but. Any time I was feeling any guilt over any of my behaviours or anything, I, I had this misconception that me and God were mates. Yeah, okay. You know, you don't have to go to church. You, you don't have to. You don't have to be a churchy. You don't have to read the Bible. You know, if you and God are mates, and I used to justify or or, or, or yeah, minimise, say, oh yeah, I might be doing the wrong thing. I might have got in a fight, but you know, I'm not beating up little kids or I'm yeah. not bashing up and robbing old ladies or I'm, I'm only breaking the houses of rich people. So yeah, yeah, God was in my awareness, but I was certainly paying no attention whatsoever to the way He wanted me to live. I was, I was. I was literally my own king and making my own rules and my parents or teachers or anybody got in the way, I just became that much of a handful and made their life that hard that, that, that pretty soon it was like, <laughs> you need to move on. At the age of 16, you move out from your grandmother's house and you start living by yourself. How was that? For me, it was awesome. It was like all these all these uh, 
things that you'd have to do if you were going to make those choices about drinking alcohol or smoking cigarettes or smoking smoking drugs, which you'd normally, if you were living at home, you'd have to hide from your parents or do at the park. Well, I could just do it in my living room. And that meant that, that I was, uh, yeah, oh, I had friends of a similar age, all of a sudden they could do it in my living room. So, yeah, at the, at the time I thought this was unreal, but I look back now and see it was really, really unhelpful for, for a start, a 16-year-old boy isn't the, the most hygienic of our creatures. So it's only been recently I stopped having nightmares or still living in that house. Like yeah, okay. Feral. I'm, I'm just talking about, I don't think I've been clean for two years. I was there and I was like, yeah, oh. Well, actually, my device is at 16 and, yeah, not, not necessarily, well, not, not a good thing at all. Yeah. You've mentioned uh, things like drug use and breaking into people's houses. Was there sort of a snowball effect? started getting into cannabis. I, I tried it before when I was living with my grandmother, and but, yeah, when I, I was living by myself, I started developing a pretty significant habit. Uh, back then... Um, Heroin was, was pretty big and sadly two or three guys where I used to know back then, uh, I used to smoke cannabis, we've sort of progressed to other things. So you'll have a group of people that will smoke cannabis, I don't know, say 15, 20, and then maybe for half that group they'll go, oh, this is enough, they'll move on to something else. So back then it was it was like speed. Um, nowadays it might be something like ice or methamphetamine and, and then another part of that group will then separate and, and start using heavy drugs and back then heroin was um was yeah was was a significant drug and two or three good people i know that i that i used to associate when i was younger died of heroin overdoses so for me there was always i always hated needles and always this part of me just going yeah 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 you're treading a fine line if you you go beyond that so so for me i was always like oh i'll stick with cannabis i'll stick stick with grog i tried a couple of other drugs once or twice but they were particularly after one one guy and they died of an overdose i was very clear i'm staying away from needles i don't don't want to go down that path for me we're breaking the house it was all i just want money for drugs so i'm just i'm just in here to just get in get stuff and get out so yeah it was there is a rush, but for me, it was more just like a yeah, a real sort of nervousness. Get what I need to do and, and get out. I I'd certainly yeah, didn't want to have people coming home, and and yeah, certainly uh, yeah, didn't want to have the consequences that would come by getting caught by the police, yep. and, and then obviously having to go before the courts. Was there a moment that turned things around, or it was just a gradual process of realization? I'd been smoking cannabis pretty heavily well over a year. My, my grandmother uh, had uh, left me a significant sum of money when I turned 18, and, and yeah, I just pretty much blew all that in a year and a half on cannabis, which meant I wasn't no longer doing or committing crimes to, to get the money, but it just meant that, yeah, I, uh, I'd got very heavily dependent on cannabis, and yeah, one, one particular night, yeah, I just had some cannabis, some alcohol, um, some and some LSD, and yeah, uh, the next day I was, yeah, just really, really struggling mentally, was hallucinating, had real feelings of dread, and yeah, I'd, uh, my parents, I'd call my parents up and just said, yeah, look, I'm, I'm not well, I'm just crying, and I wasn't certainly the type of kid to be crying, so that was probably a massive warning for my parents, and yeah, I'd, uh, I had to be admitted to uh, the psychiatric hospital overnight, and then for a month was having twice 
daily visits and was being pretty heavily medicated. So for me, that was the uh, the the time where I'm like, yeah, I uh, I, I have to get off drugs. Um, I don't mm. know that, yeah, as I said, it was necessarily something that I had the willpower or made the choice to. The choice was sort of made for me. And, you know, I look back now and, and think, well, even though I certainly wasn't paying much attention to God at that time, he was certainly at work in my life in ways I didn't understand prior to me, yeah, coming to the place of taking him seriously. Yeah. What did your parents do well in that situation? Uh, you talk about contacting them. Uh, you end up at Wynn Stadium, uh, the Great Wynn Stadium, in May of 2000. What what brought you there and what, what was going on there? I went up to the Gold Coast and I was living up there for about three years, predominantly to work in the security industry full-time. And uh, I don't know if uh, people have been to the Gold Coast, but you've certainly got uh, uh, quite a number of nightclubs in pretty close proximity to each other and it's a place where lots of people go on holidays. So they, they might not behave as they would... Uh, they would behave uh, normally. Um, yep. So I was working in the nightclubs up there, and, and this was in the day when uh, yeah, security guards were called bouncers, and there, were, there, there was a reason for that. There wasn't the, the, certainly the emphasis now on uh, responsible service of alcohol or, or the cameras. They were pretty much being a bouncer meant that somebody didn't leave or didn't do what they were told. The security would bounce them out of there. So I was up there for about three years, um, over that time, I'd been involved in some reasonably serious incidents. I'd, I'd seen um, seen a person get killed. Um, I'd uh, I'd certainly hurt people seriously in incidents. Certainly, you would gone over the top more than mm-hmm. the force that was required. And I'd literally was up on the Gold Coast, thinking this whole. Me got a mate's mindset I'd carried all through my teenage years as disordered as it was, even I was going, yeah, if God's real, he, he, he can't 
can't be happy with what's what's been happening up here. So there'd been a pretty serious incident involving an employer of mine who uh, the police were wanted to investigate. So I, I, I thought, yeah, uh, I, I need to get out of here, otherwise I'm going to literally end up seriously injured or in jail. Moved back to Wollongong, was there with family, just sort of kicking back in, and then, yeah, all of a sudden... In 2000, there's all these posters popping up around the place. Uh, does what happens when you die? Does God care how you live? Uh, who is Jesus and why does he matter? And I guess for me, those posters and those stickers and a whole lot of other things that have been done in Wollongong to promote the, the event certainly piqued my interest. And, and for me, a, a big thing was that it wasn't affiliated with a church. Like, as yep. you mentioned, it was at the, it was at the, the, uh, the, the Wynn Entertainment Centre. So that's the indoor stadium next to the, next to the Wynn Stadium, the WEC. Yeah, that was a big thing for me because I didn't have any Christian friends. There'd been one guy a couple of years ago I'd been smoking cannabis with and one day he just stopped and said, oh, yeah, I'll become a Christian. And I'm just like, what? What are you talking about? We were actually giving it to him, saying, oh, well, Jesus created cannabis and, uh, yeah, wouldn't he want you to smoke cannabis? So I certainly didn't really have any any Christian influences. So um, when this was on at the uh, the WEC, I thought I'll go to that. If somebody had invited me to church, I would have been, no, no, no. Don't worry about church. Um, we've got a mates, and and sadly, my um, my view of, of um, I guess people in the church hadn't wasn't great. Certainly, when I'd been at school, I I knew some kids who I knew were Christians, but they hadn't really stood out as being confident or bold in their faith. They just seemed to be quiet and polite. Um, so in my head, being a Christian just meant you were a pussy. It didn't mean that you, mm. you stood up or contended for anything. And sadly, a lot of the media around clergy was around sexual impropriety, inappropriate dealing with children or stealing money. So for me, it was like, well, yeah, church, the guy up the front wearing the collar, what are you going to listen to him for? He's probably out doing the wrong thing. Who's he to be telling you how to live? So so to go to Wynn Stadium, um, uh, sorry, the WEC, uh, was was certainly a, a place where I was comfortable to, to at least have discussions and hear hear about God, whereas in a church I would have had so many false misconceptions and barriers that I probably never would have would have been able to go. Was there something said that night that made it click for you as a Christian? Yeah, so the pastor, Greg Laurie, was a gifted evangelist. He was cracking jokes about how he looked like Wally Lewis because he did look like Wally Lewis. And, and, yeah, he wasn't wearing a collar. He was just so different than any of the other limited exposure I'd had to, to Bible teaching. But there were several things he said that night. The first night he, uh, he preached on the prodigal son. And yeah, that's that's in Luke's. Um, and yeah, certainly the picture of the prodigal son who is loved, dearly loved by his father, but pretty much says to his father, "Yep, stuff it. I don't want to live your way. I don't want to live your rules. I want to go off and do my own thing." So his father reluctantly lets him go, and then the son realizes, "Hang on, like, yeah, I got what I wanted, and it wasn't what I wanted at all. I need to go back to my father." Um, and he goes back to his father, expecting his father to be angry at him, saying, "You've blown." all this money, disrespected me, a whole lot of other things, but the father just loves him and, and welcomes him back. So I could never remember hearing that story um, whilst I'd been at Scripture or Chapel at High School or anything like that. Um, but the, the things that really, really, uh, I guess, 
impact of me on that night was I spoke about earlier about I had this mindset that uh that yeah yeah I might just yeah do some drugs and do some crime and get into fights but me God you mate you know I'm not a bad person I'm not out committing serious crimes or seriously hurting people or just trying to justify my own behaviour. Yeah. He actually said that night he said yeah if if you're here tonight that's awesome. Um. Because that means in some way you must think well of Jesus. But Jesus didn't say think well of me. Jesus said follow me. And, yeah. he, said, and he said, and I know this is a big thing in Australia, but if you're here tonight and you think you and God are mates, if you haven't repented and turned to Jesus, God loves you, but you're not mates. And I literally felt like in a, in like a stadium of 4,000 people, that statement was like just absolutely hit me like, like an arrow. I was like, whoa, what, what? Well, where, where did that come from? And and he um he followed that up and um he said that the uh, Grand Pastor Laurie, he's like, yeah, so don't be like somebody who thinks well of Jesus. He said pretty much Jesus, the scriptures say very clearly that we can only only be forgiven and come into right relationship with God um by yeah, repenting and accepting what Jesus did for him on the cross. Before that, I thought of my life as one big like scoreboard, ticks and crosses. Yeah. So I figured as long as I have one more tick than cross, I'm yeah. going to get into heaven. That yeah. was literally that was literally my distorted mindset, and that just got blown out of the water when he's like, "Well, no, it's no matter." How good you be, you can't be good enough. There's only one way to be right with God, and, and, and yeah, that's through Jesus. So, and then he went to speak about um, train. He said it's very clear. People can be standing on a train platform, then a train pulls up, and he says, and that train, if we think of that's Jesus' offer to us to, to repent and turn to him and enter right relationship with God, he says that when that train pulls away, we're either on the train or off the train. He said, some people just reject Jesus. They just say, no, it's not for me. I don't need Jesus. I'm a good person. Can I even be sure he's the right way or a thousand and one other things? And they just say, I'm not getting on the platform. I think for me, I was trying to live my life, even though I wasn't doing a great job of it, with one foot on the platform, one foot on the train. Yeah. Guess what? The moment the train starts moving, you're very quickly going to have to make a decision which way you're going to go. And invariably, People step back onto the platform. He's like, don't leave here tonight stepping back onto the platform. He says, if you're here tonight and what I'm saying is ringing true for you, step onto the train, receive the Lord Jesus, be forgiven, enter enter, enter a right relationship with God. And so he's they put like the, the Harvest Church is an American church, pretty good with the music ministries and whatnot. So at the, at the end of his talk, he's like, if you want to give your life to Jesus, come up out of your chair and come down now and I'm going to leave you in a prayer. So I got up out of my chair. Yeah. I literally hadn't run that fast for a long time. <laughs> I was out of there. I'm just like, what, what? This was not what I came to do. I came to find out about does God care about how I live and probably, yeah, just find out how I could be a better person because I hadn't been particularly proud of the way I'd been living for, for quite a while. I certainly didn't go there to get told that, yeah, that God loved me but we weren't mates and we never could be mates while I hadn't repented and turned to Jesus and I had to go down and do that on his terms, not my own. So I went back the following night. I don't even know what he was preaching on. Whereas last time, the night, the first night I went, he was like, well, if you want to, uh, if you want to, to give your life to Jesus, I was out of there. That night I was there, just hurry up and finish talking because that's why I'm here to do it. So, so yeah. Um, so I gave my life to Christ. I uh, led 
led, uh, was led in a prayer by Greg Laurie, and it was a really well-organised event. And, yeah, there was a young boy who came up and, and, and prayed with me and, uh, yeah, gave me a New Believers Bible. Um, and he took my uh, my details down, and what had happened was because Harvest was done in collaboration with all the local churches, um, I was contacted a couple of days later by a, a guy um, at St Mark's uh, Anglican Church down in West Wollongong, and he introduced himself and said, "Hi, how are you going? I'm Dave." Um, yeah, I've received your name because the other night you are uh, you. I've been told that you decided to receive Christ as your Lord and Saviour. My job is to just follow up and see if there's anything I can do for you and invite you to come along to church. Um, uh, if you're not already a church, you can go to. I said, well, I was there by myself. I didn't really know anybody else. I didn't, don't really know which church to go to. I had actually been to that particular church once or twice before for chapel. I think my parents had got married there, so it wasn't totally foreign to me. But, yeah, I went went to Harvest that uh, – sorry, I went to St. Mark's the Sunday after Harvest, so a couple of nights later, and I met Dave. Uh, at that point in my life, I was back in Wollongong, but I was doing a lot night shift security watching trains of an evening making sure vandals and graffiti gangs didn't get to them so i couldn't really go to to a bible study group but he was like well yeah mate if you if you're going to to stay strong as a christian and grow on that you need to be meeting with believers so yeah he he come over once a week uh on thursdays to read the bible with me for an hour at 2 30 but we very soon realized that that, yeah, as, as much as, well, he, he certainly loved Jesus and I was great to love Jesus, but he loved Carlton and the Parramatta Eels <laughs> and the Australian cricket team, only at that stage of his life a, a fraction less. So, yeah, we'd, we'd meet for three hours. We were always pretty solid about, okay, we're going to spend an hour reading the Bible, praying together, but the other two hours we'd be talking about sport or, or life in general. And, yes. and, yeah, I look back now and think, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I would have made, lasted as a, as a believer if it hadn't been for him doing that. That really getting close to me and encouraged because I, I, yeah, wasn't from a, a Christian family. I didn't have any Christian friends. Um, I was getting to know uh, believers at church and things like that. But yeah, that was taking a bit of time. So I'm really thankful to God that he he really got beside me and read the Bible with me and prayed with me and was a great example about okay, this is what it this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And he was a different guy than me in a lot of ways. He'd grown up in a Christian family and been a believer most of his life, but he, he loved sport. He was unashamed of his faith. Uh, he was bold in proclaiming, and that was so different than any other Christians I knew. So I guess for me, it's like, yeah, this isn't necessarily for wimps and pussies and, and, and people that might say anything. You can actually be a, a bold, confident, strong person, but do that certainly under the lordship of Jesus instead of having to do that outside of that or be that, but you can't be a Christian at the same time. Talk about full irony and uh, God sort of, almost playing jokes in a number of years later you, you yourself become a primary school teacher oh, after i uh, was saved i thought you know I, I i need to do something in my life god's blessed me with a certain level of intelligence so i need to need to not waste that so i'd, I'd, I'd always go on a ride at school it was always behavior issues and and other things that had gotten in the way when I actually was was paying attention, my marks had always been okay. So I, I actually went to uh, entered Wollongong uh, Uni as a mature age student. Had to do like a preparation course because I didn't know how to write an academic pro 
shows or to do proper referencing or anything like that. So, um, but yeah, I started uh, originally at university. I was going to do. Uh, I was going to be a stockbroker. Yep. And one night I was challenged by a homeless guy. He was going through the bin at Woolworths. I was doing security at the Royal Release Club. And, yeah, this guy was going through the bin. And I see him, see him going for, uh, like, getting food. And I thought, yeah, I'd been a Christian about, a, I don't know, six or seven months by then. And I, I, had, I had my dinner. I went over and said, you know, mate, um, yeah, if you're hungry, you, you can have my dinner. Like, yeah, you don't need to get stuff out of the bin. He's like, oh, I appreciate the offer, but I'm actually choosing to get food out of the bin. And I said, why is that? He's, he's, he sort of went on to explain that, yeah, he was a believer. Uh, he, yeah, he, he believed in the Lord Jesus, but, yeah, he felt as though that the financial structures had been corrupted. And if you, once food had been thrown out, that was the way to truly be living dependent on God. And whilst I certainly wouldn't agree with everything that he had to say and the choices he was making. Yes. One thing he challenged me on that, he said, so if you're going to any way you're doing stockbroking, I'm like, because I want to get a well-paid job. And he's like, oh, okay, so you think you're going to stay on track with Jesus while you focus on getting a well-paid job? And yeah, I wasn't really happy with uh, my answer to that because yeah. I realised that, yeah, that I was going to, I was going to feel that tension. How would I... If I just wanted to keep following Jesus, keep him as the most important thing in my life and not making a lot of money as a stockbroker because I think invariably he's got to be so much focused. I believe there are Christian stockbrokers out there. So what am I going to do? I'm not real good at making stuff. I certainly can't do science. Uh, my artistic skills, I'm still doing stick figures with a beard with a little J underneath it. That's Jesus when I'm preaching. So, um, and then it was like school teaching and I'm like, What? What? <laughs> so, yeah, I, uh, I did a Bachelor of Arts and then a Dip Ed, but I've got to say it was pretty pretty evident even before I finished uni that God wanted me to work with young people uh, in, a, in a positive educational way, but not necessarily teaching the alphabet or, yeah. or times tables, uh, yeah, but more to work with young people who, like myself, just, just had grown up, yeah, just really rebellious, made a whole lot of bad choices, got involved in offending. And, yeah, I guess I look back at that time now, God was preparing me in that uni in those three or four years I was teaching with the, the actual teaching and engagement of young people skills that I was able to use in, in youth ministry, uh, but also certainly now as working for youth justice. You're able to, I guess, empathise with many of the youth and, and where they're at given your own upbringing and your own experiences. So, so that's, um, that's really beautiful, I guess, that God is using you in that way. In 2009, that's when we met at YouthWorks, but that, but that, was, a, that was a difficult year for you or the start of a, a really difficult period for you. Can you, can you share a little bit about, about that time? got married in February 2009. Um, I, by that stage, was... What, 33, 34? And yeah, I, uh, I uh, married a, a, a young lady and she was 21. And yeah, she, uh, she loved Jesus and, uh, and yeah, God had really blessed her with, with a lot of really great gifts. And yeah, she was somebody who I thought, yeah, this is, this is somebody who I love and, and somebody that I believe that I can make a difference for Jesus within the world. And yeah. 
Any marriage, uh, certainly between believers, starts at that place with wanting to keep Jesus at the centre. But, yeah, I look back now and I, I just think, yeah, I certainly wasn't equipped relationally from my childhood um, and my experiences uh, to, to, yeah, certainly be a married person. And I, I, I think that, yeah, that would probably be a true statement for both of us. So, sadly, yeah, we were started having pretty significant problems uh, by mid-2009 and, and they continued to escalate until, uh, yeah, 2011 when, when we separated and then, and then sadly divorced. Um, that wasn't um, a mutual choice. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd made a promise to, in, in front of God and in front of all my family and friends uh, to, yeah, to do everything in my power to, to love my wife as Christ, love the church, even though I failed to do that on numerous, numerous occasions. But the intent was to still keep trying to do that and to keep being changed. Um, but, yeah, sadly, uh, yeah, my my ex-wife wasn't at that place and, yeah, she was just really, really wanted to get divorced. So yeah. it certainly was just as much, if not one, my fault. I have to certainly take, yeah, uh, my my share of the blame for the breakdown of that marriage, but yeah, it certainly wasn't a mutual choice. Yeah. What do you look back on and say, I could have done this better? Was there one thing at all? Well, well you know, being able to be married, and my wife would say now, there's there's a different between being right and um and you. Yeah, being humble. And yeah. Yeah, for me, I think particularly, I, I certainly, if there's a disagreement or there's a d- difference of opinion for me, it's well, if I'm right, I'm digging my heels in. I don't back down, I'll never back down. And, and yeah, that was certainly something which I, I look back now and think, well, but certainly if you look at the example of Jesus, it's like how, there were times where he stood his ground, but he didn't just get stubborn just to prove I'm right. Yeah. He stood his ground where he had to correct false teachings or, or, or yeah, people, uh, yeah, just openly, like, turning people away from, from God. But he never, like, got the prideful I'm right, I'm holding holding my ground. So, so for me, yeah, that's something that I look back on certainly in my first marriage and even now in, in my character and think, yeah, but just that, that humility and... And that gentleness. You don't don't always have to be right all the time. Even if you are right, um, proving yourself right or being forceful to prove you're right, ultimately, uh, it doesn't really matter. You haven't won the argument or you haven't advanced anything. You've just made the situation worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think so many marriages, it seems like there's a bit of point scoring going on, doesn't there? And it's about winning the argument, not coming to a, a resolution. So thanks for sharing, particularly on that tough period then. Remember when we were at YouthWorks that they, one of the intensives they said to us, we we don't want you to take your Bible out, we just want you to just, don't take a notebook, just go for a walk around the campus and, and just, just stop. And the whole idea was, I think Kerry had sort of said, you know, that, that God speaks through the scriptures and God speaks through teaching, but, you know, God speaks in stillness sometimes and just go away and clear your mind and don't think about it, your Bible, don't read your Bible, don't write anything down, just just walk and clear your mind and seek God. And I was, I went for a bit of a walk around around the Loftus campus there, so you're down near the river and it's sort of like a foresty sort of area and I'm, I'm sort of looking around and I'd 
yeah, I was having issues, um, obviously, in the marriage. I was feeling like, okay, God, where, where are you and all this? And I've looked, I've looked and there's this butterfly. Yep. And it's this butterfly sort of on the path there. And I'm sort of, I'm looking at this butterfly and this butterfly tries to take up, take off. It flaps its wings a couple of times, doesn't go anywhere and hits the ground again. And I'm just sort of looking at this butterfly and at the time I'm like, why is my attention on this butterfly? And then the butterfly tries to take off a couple of, flaps its wings a couple of times then and goes back to the ground. And I'm just sort of watching this butterfly. Then third time flaps its wings and just sort of takes off. And I just had this real sort of feeling that God was saying that, yeah, you're, you're really stuttering here. I'm, I'm, yeah. And, you're flapping around and you don't feel like you're going anywhere and you're not flying, but don't worry, I'm, I'm here and you're going to flap your wings. At least that's the feeling that I had. So for, for me, I can look back at moments like that and I'm like, yeah, I'm not kidding myself around this. This isn't delusional thinking. or Because, well, yeah, I, I speak to my father now and, and sadly he's not saved. And when we look at my life now the back, then he says, oh, you know, you always had the potential to be a good kid, but you, you just needed to grow up and you latched onto this whole God idea and that. Yeah, gave you a power outside yourself to do it, and and yeah, I can say, well, I don't believe that to be the case at all. And it's moments like that butterfly incident where I can look back and just go, yeah, that was a very clear moment in my life where God just reached out in a little small way and, and made it pretty clear that yeah, well, I'm with you in this and I'm real. Shane, we'll jump forward again. You've been employed a number of times, uh, specifically as an evangelist, or you've or you've had a specific role, even if you weren't. In- employed what is it that makes a good evangelist yeah i believe that, uh, that yeah, god has gifted me to be an evangelist for his glory taking away from the experiences good and bad in my life um i guess for, for me I, I guess early on years working on a nightclub door you get very very uh adept at having uh initial and at times conversations with people where you have to be bold and straight to the point. So I guess for me, that's something that God was able to use. Um, in saying that, I think that, uh, that yeah, God, God says pretty clearly uh, in, in Acts and other places that all believers are called to be witnesses. So everybody who is a believer can be a witness, um, uh, to witness to what God has done in their life, to their personal testimony of salvation. But I think for an evangelist, uh, the key is being intentional about wanting to have the conversations. Mm. Um, so I've been fortunate that I've been discipled by guys who uh, pretty early on, I remember I was on a mission trip and we knocked on a door. And these guys opened the door and they were in the middle of a session. Like they, they literally, I think he was blowing smoke out, out as he opened the door. And well, I'm like, I said, oh, yeah, I'm Shane and this is Cameron. We're from, we're from Wollongong and we're here. And I was in Newcastle from such and such church. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, we're good, mate. Thanks for dropping by. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. It smells like you're smoking some head there, and the guys like looked at me like, "What do you mean?" I said, "Oh yeah, before I was a Christian, um, yeah, I used to smoke, I used to smoke heaps of bombs, man." He's like, "He's oh yeah, well, how come you stopped?" And I'm like, "Well, I stopped because yeah, I, I found Jesus, but there's more important." Anyhow, they ended up inviting us inside, and we were chatting for about half an hour. And after we went out, the guy I was doing it with was the assistant pastor at the church, and he's like, "You, my friend, is what they call an evangelist, so we've got to we've got to start training you." So I've been fortunate to have done a few different training things over the years. Ultimately, 
God gets the glory and people respond to that and step into salvation. So I think for for evangelists, or certainly for myself at least, I'm, like, I'm involved in a ministry now where we go out and, and knock on people's doors who are new to our area. We uh, keep an eye on like um, realestate.com and domain and then when people move into the area, we literally go to the house and we, we welcome them, uh, let them know that, that God loves them and has a good plan for their life, let them know where the church is. Uh, we went out last weekend myself and my wife and we were actually able to leave uh, some rolls of toilet paper. Yeah. Certainly in, in current times, uh, uh, certainly uh, an in-demand item. With uh, just, uh, I think we put Matthew 8-2 on it, be clean. Um, great, that's great, Shane. <laughs> Shane, it's been great hearing your story. I've really loved love chatting with you. It's been wonderful. Cheers, brother. It's been good. It's been good to catch up with you, mate. It's been too long. Thank you very much. Thanks for giving this opportunity. Hopefully it's able to encourage some people in in wherever they're at in their their journey. And if that brings them one step closer to knowing how much God loves them and and the good plan he has for his life. One of my favourite verses, Jeremiah. I know the plans I have for you. Plans not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. You'll find me when you seek me with your full heart. Thank you for listening to the Little Picture Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please make sure you subscribe and give us a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Here at the Little Picture, we want to hear the stories of ordinary people as they serve and walk with an extraordinary God. Until next time, goodbye.